You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Um, we're going to look at just the seventh day of creation today, and that, that may catch you uh, a little by surprise because often when we read the creation account, we just kind of lump the seventh day into the other six. We read these three verses, and then we kind of move on. But even though I moved very quickly through the other six days of creation last week, I wanted to intentionally take a little extra time and spend our entire time today just on chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So let's pick it up in verse 1, chapter 2 of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Father, just as we had just sung, that all of our burdens, all of our cares, all of our heartaches, that, Father, we are certainly to bring them to you. Father, forgive us when we think that we can handle it all ourselves. Forgive us, Father, when we, uh, when we think that you're not big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to make any difference in the prayers that we're praying. Father, forgive us when we fail to even come and talk to you about it when you've invited us to come and make our petitions known, your, your son gave his very lifeblood that the veil may be torn, that we could be reconciled to you, not just so we could be saved from our sins and saved from hell and from your wrath, but to be saved to something, a relationship, an ongoing relationship where we can talk with you and, and you talk with us. Father, forgive us when we forsake that for other things. Father, forgive us when in any given week we're so busy with things that don't matter that the things that do matter get left out. Father, help us to keep our priorities straight. Help us, Lord, to, to go deeper in our walk and our devotion to you. Help us, Lord, to wake each day and see that this is a gift you've given us. But Father, we... So many times in my own life, I bemoan the things that I have to face, and I sometimes, Father, I just, sometimes, Father, I'm just not following your will. So, Father, I pray that today and every day will be a day of worship and adoration for you. And, Father, our love for you, our devotion to you, flows outward then in our love for each other. So, Father, God, us in your word today. Give us perspective, and understanding. But, Father, not that we would just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers also. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, last week in particular, I kind of walked you through those days of creation, walked you through them kind of quickly. And, and the emphasis that I tried to focus on was not just that God spoke and created, and certainly he did that but that God brought form and function to that which he created. Not only did he create the space, but he filled that space. Not only did he fill that space, but he gave it order, he gave it purpose, he gave it meaning. And all of those days leading up to that sixth day when he would create, well, the pinnacle of his creation, that he would 
take and form the dirt into a man and breathe into that man, into that woman to life and give them a soul spirit which then will live forever, to give them the ability to reason and make decisions, to give them the ability to create just like God creates. And that in that moment, we became image bearers, the Imago Dei, that we have the ability now to not only represent God on earth, but to be his prized creation set apart from the rest of creation that all that he did in those days leading up to the sixth day creating an atmosphere, turning on the lights, separating the waters, uh, raising up earth, ground to which vegetation could grow, filling the waters and the air and eventually the land with animals was all in preparation, well, for you and I. So when we look at the cosmos filled with two trillion galaxies, each galaxy with 100 billion planets each. We think of the vastness of that and how that, that God spoke and it came to be. But then we think, on the other hand, that all of this, even things we've never even seen, telescopes that's never even seen the reaches of the cosmos, that when we look out there and we see what's there, or when we look through a microscope and we see the inner workings, the intricacies of a cell, a human cell, our response should be, my God, how awesome you are. And that not that he created all of this, but that he, he knows us by name. That he, that he knows the hairs on our head, the psalmist says. That he, that he knows the contents and the thoughts within our heart. That yes, on the one hand, God spoke and it came to be. That on the other hand, he knows you by name. And he loves you. And, and he knew you before you ever came to be. He knew you in eternity past. He had his eyes on you. And he knew that, that there would be that point when he would draw you to himself. And that point, for those of you who've put your faith in Jesus and you've been reconciled to God and you've been adopted by him, God saw that in eternity past and loved you in spite of yourself, in spite of your failures, in spite of your choices, in spite of the thoughts that run through your head, that this creator, as majestic and beautiful as he is, loves you and will never forsake you. Amen. We, could just, we could just close up and go home right there. It's that beautiful. It's that amazing. I'm hoping that this past week, maybe as you're driving, you look at that sunrise or that sunset, and maybe just for a moment, you just began to be thankful for all that God has done in your life. Maybe just maybe you saw that, that flower in your, in your flower beds out in your garden, and you saw those flowers, and you think, my goodness, what a mighty God we serve. Maybe, maybe when you thought about those grandchildren or those children, and how beautiful they are and how, how unique they are, that maybe you just smile. Maybe a smile came across your face and you just praise God for all the work he is doing in your life. I've said it a hundred times. It's worth saying again. God is at work some 10,000 plus ways in your life, and sometimes we don't even recognize one. The whole purpose of walking through Genesis is not only to see the majesty and the beauty of God, but also to, to begin to consider that all that he did in creation was in preparation for you. So are those of you out there who are thinking that, that God has forgotten about you, that somehow that God has abandoned you, that God doesn't care about you, or that you've went somehow too far in the choices that you've made in your life, that God wiped his hands of you and walked away, listen to me, that is nothing more than a lie from the pit of hell. And you need to understand that. But your God, the God of creation, loves you. He always has. And this God is the one we want to get to know. And this morning we want to take a look at, at this seventh day that seems to be almost kind of like an attack on to the end of these six days of creation where God is speaking and working and molding and fashioning and forming and taking something that was chaotic and bringing order.
And then we get to the seventh day and we really don't know what to do with it. It's like we read the seventh day and it's like, okay, so God took a nap after he worked hard for six days. In our human perspective, that's what we begin to think. And then this whole idea of the Sabbath inevitably comes up. And what I have learned, and, and this is from my own experiences, I think there's a whole lot of confusion about this seventh day, and I think there's a whole lot of confusion about what that means for us today as New Testament believers in relation to the Old Testament, in relation to the Sabbath, in relation to the fourth command of the Ten Commandments, that fourth command that says, you shall honor the Sabbath. When I was growing up as a kid, I got, there was a time in my life I got really confused about this. Uh, I, think, I think maybe the startings of it or maybe one element of why I was confused was when I was about 10 or 11 years old, my, my dad's brother, uh, to this day, he's like a, like a handyman. He can do just about anything. And people hire him to do all sorts of, of jobs around their home and around their farm. And there was this one job that he needed to do, and it was to cut some trees down. And, and he needed an extension ladder where he could get way up in the tree to hook a cable so he could pull it away from, from the house that he was working with, the people he was working for. So he goes and he buys this ladder, this really nice, expensive extension ladder. And, and then he makes the decision that because he had so much work coming up the next week, even though his parents, my, my mom and my dad's parents had taught those, get this, 16 kids. Yes, my dad's side of the family was huge. Okay, there's 10 still living. My dad's the oldest. And my grandfather taught them that you shall honor the Sabbath, which he called Sunday. All right, that's the first moment of confusion because later on I'd find out something else. But, but nonetheless, the story with the ladder, my uncle decides that because he's got so much work to do the next week, he's going to do something that he was taught to never do. And he decided to go out on Sunday, take this new ladder, and go ahead and get those trees down on Sunday so that he could have a kind of a jump on the work the next week. So, so he goes out on Sunday, goes to this job site, gets this expensive ladder out, he hooks the cable, cuts the tree, and guess what? The tree falls on the brand new ladder and just destroys it. I mean, just absolutely, utterly destroys the ladder. And then I remember a conversation that my dad had with my uncle, which is his brother. I remember sitting in the truck hearing this conversation because I'm sitting in the middle. And my dad speaks to his brother, my uncle, and says, you know why that happened, right? <laughs> what are you laughing about? Well, I mean, you're already there, right? You know why that happened. You know you're not supposed to be working on Sunday, and God, God judged you for that. Well, I'm sitting in the middle of this going, oh, man. Well, I'm definitely going to be doing no work on Sunday. Because if God caused a tree to fall on a ladder that my uncle had bought and used it on Sunday, as a 10-year-old, that kind of woke me up a little bit. But it also planted some understanding about God's Word that would follow me for a long time. You see, my trouble maybe began at that time, but it didn't end there because the questions got deeper and the questions got more profound. For example, I came to faith in Christ when I was 16. So after 16 going to church, I would hear this, I always talk about Sunday being the Sabbath, and I would hear about how that you're not supposed to work on Sunday, but yet those very people that I'm sitting in church with who are amening what the pastor's saying would get up out of church, get in their car, go to a restaurant. And I was confused by that because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If, if we know working on the Sabbath, as they would say, was Sunday, 
If that's wrong, then, then why are we going to the businesses where these people are having to work? Wouldn't it be better for us to not go to any of those businesses so those people wouldn't have to work so they could be in church too? That's how my mind worked. I couldn't, I couldn't get around it. Then, later on, in my 20s, I finally had somebody step into my life and, and start discipling me one-on-one. And, oh, my goodness, I found out something. And it was mind-blowing. Because for most of my teen years and my early 20s, I was trying my very best to keep this list of things I'm not supposed to do and the things I'm supposed to do, make sure that I have more checks on this side of the equation than I do this because the way I understood it was that that God would love me more as long as I did more good things. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, I was born again at 16. I know that without a doubt. But I had spent a lot of time just trying to please God. Just trying, just trying to get enough boxes checked. So what that means on Sunday, I'm not going to work on Sunday, but boy, when I would drive down the road and see somebody mowing their yard, I could get really, almost like a Pharisee. Well, I would never do that. Y'all have not done that, right? Y'all have not done that? You know I drove down the road and saw somebody mowing their yard. You drive home the day somebody's mowing their yard on Sunday. For those of you who've been in church for a long time, and all of a sudden there's something that rises up on the inside of you, says, well, I would never do that. You know what that's called in the Bible? Pride. That's where that list of do's and don'ts will always lead you. Not only will it always lead you to a place of pride, but it will also lead you to a place of emptiness, absolute, complete emptiness. And this person who helped me to start understanding God's word for my own, well, he told me that God loved me with an everlasting love and that there was nothing I would ever do that would sever that love. He'd take me to places like Romans chapter 8. And all of a sudden, I began to realize that the Sabbath was not Sunday at all. Not in the Jewish mind. The Sabbath was Saturday. Now I'm really confused, right? And so the church is meeting on Sunday to worship, but yet there are people like I had a relative who was seven-day Adventist, and they, they only met on Saturday to worship, and they would, they would point to the Baptist church and say, y'all are a bunch of sinners for not meeting on Saturday. And in the confusion, it just kept getting more and more. But thankfully, I had some people around me who would start helping me to understand what God's Word actually says. And that is my goal this morning, is to help you to know what does God's Word actually say about this. So we're going to do something a little different today. Normally, I would just stay in the text. I might have one other secondary text. But today, to really give us a full scope of what this, what we're trying to get and understanding with this, we're going to have to move pretty much through the whole Bible. And I'm not going to preach the whole Bible because I know you got lunch today. But nonetheless, I am going to be moving from the Old Testament all the way over into the New Testament. So pick it up in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. So we have the six days of creation. God speaking, God forming, God giving function and purpose to his creation. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And then we get to these words, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, at that point, in our understanding of what rest is, here's what we often have in our understanding here. So, so God is, is working hard these six days to speak the universe into existence. Maybe he's sweating a little bit. Man, he, he is really stretching and working hard only to get to the seventh day and God strings up a heavenly hammock and just chills, takes a nap. That's what we're thinking of when we think of the seventh day, that God needed somehow to rest. Well, let me just alleviate that right off the bat. God needs nothing because he's God. He doesn't need rest. 
He doesn't need uh, some time of respite to kind of regather himself. He is God, and because he's God, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need rest. It's not as though he overexerted himself in six days of creation. Listen, folks, let me hear me clearly on this. He could have brought the whole entire universe into existence in a single second. He didn't need six days. He didn't need six seconds. He didn't need six microseconds. That's who he is. So the thing that when he gets to his seventh day, he's like, whew, man, I just got to take a break. That's, that's a human understanding and thrusting that upon God and make sure you understand he is not like us, okay? So it's not as though God needed rest. And here's the issue that I have or the challenge. That word rest is translated from a Hebrew word that can also mean ceasing work. So in essence, what we're reading here is not so much that, that God took a nap. What we're reading here is that after God d- got done with six days of creation, he simply stopped. Makes sense, right? That, that in those six days of creation, God had accomplished all that he sought out to accomplish. And so that, that God stopped his creative work in bringing the cosmos into existence and giving it form and function. And by the way, when we get to the seventh day of creation, It says that God ceased. Did you know that God is still ceased in that work? He is still in that place of rest. We don't have an evening and morning was the seventh day. God stopped creating. He didn't need to create anymore. He had built into the creation the ability for the the plants and vegetables and, and animal life to propagate themselves. So God is not continually creating. He ceased. He stopped. Notice what else Moses writes here. It says, verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and, and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Those first three verses are kind of repetitive. And, and there there's this one part that he breaks out and says, not only did God cease his work on the seventh day, but he made that day holy. He consecrated that day. He sets that day apart. Now, why would God do that? Well, We find out later why he did that. He stops his work. Everything that he accomplished, set out to accomplish in those six days, he has accomplished. He ceases from that work, and he goes into a state of basically stopping, and then he takes that seventh day, sets it apart, and says, this day is special. This day is holy. This day is set apart. Now we have to kind of move on over into the Old Testament a little bit. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 16, you can. So now we, we, we move forward. And here's the, here's the interesting thing that I found. There is no mention of Sabbath from Adam all the way to Moses. So all of that time, the covenant promises, we don't have a mention and we have no indication that there was a practice of Sabbath. Now that word rest in Genesis is the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease. But then when we get over to Moses, we have kind of a, a play on that word. It's another Hebrew word called Shabbat. And that's where we get our English transliteration, Sabbath. Okay? Now, in Exodus 16, what's happening here? So in Exodus chapter 16, I think it's verse 23, we have the first mention of what we know to be Sabbat, Sabbath. So we have all this time, and now all of a sudden, Moses steps in and he says, okay, Israelite people. Now, remember, we have the covenant promises, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. No matter where you're reading in the Old Testament, the old covenant, the covenant with Abraham is is always in the background, always driving the Old Testament. 
So God set Abraham apart, says to him, your offspring are going to be a blessing to the world and to the nations. Your offspring are going to be so many, you'll be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. You're going to be a people set apart to me. God chose Abraham, chose a line out of Abraham that would eventually lead to none other than King David himself. But prior to that, God would say through Moses, after the people had been set free from Egyptian bondage, he begins to set forth through Moses what God expects of his people. Now, make sure you get this. This is very important. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were not given to the nation of Israel so they could live those things out and be right with God. The commandments were given to the people because they were already set apart to God, and that's how they were expected to live. So don't think of the Ten Commandments, well, i got to keep these commandments so God will love me. That's not what we find. What we find is that God had already set these people apart, and now he says to them, if you're going to be my people, this is how I expect you to live. So in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, we have the story of God providing food for his people while they're in the wilderness. And he's providing manna for them. And they were to go out of their tents and gather up this manna. And there was very specific rules on what God expected of them for this manna. But one specific set of rules was is that the day before the Sabbath, which, by the way, is Saturday, God said through Moses that the people were only supposed to gather day to day what they needed for that day. But on the day before the Sabbath, they were supposed to gather enough for two days, the day of and the next day. And there we have, in verse 23, the mention of Sabbath. In other words, the idea that you're going to stop on the seventh day to honor God. And, and they make the connection. Moses makes the connection under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit back to the creation order in Genesis chapter 2. God ceased from his work, so God wants his people to cease from their work on that seventh day. Why did God do that? Well, God did it as a gift to humanity, to his people he says, I don't want you working perpetually over and over. I don't want you to, to just be working all the time. I want you to, to take some time and stop. Because as human beings, we do need rest. As human beings, we do need to let our, our brain and our body take a break. And so God says, based on the creation account, the seventh day, this is a mandate for the Israelite people that on the seventh day, you're going to stop. Now then, we get to Exodus 20, and he codifies it, puts it in the law. The fourth day, he says, on that fourth day, you will not work. You will cease from your work. Your animals will cease from your work. In other words, you're going to stop. Now, the rest of the pagan nations around them, now remember, the nation of Israel is there to be light to the nations, to testify to the nations that there is a God in heaven. That's why they're there. That's why they've been separated to himself. The rest of the nations, they didn't have this. But the nation of Israel was supposed to stop on that day. Over time, what happens is they begin to add more and more and more and more responsibilities to Sabbath observance. Because it became very practical. The people want to honor the Sabbath, but they need some guidance and direction on what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. So what happens over many, many years is scribes and religious rulers step in and they begin to add all of these laws to this one law to honor the Sabbath and tell the nation of Israel how they were supposed to honor it. Sabbath is mentioned 111 times in the, in the Old Testament. And I, I thought this was shocking to me, but only one time in the Psalms. In all of the Psalms, Sabbath is only mentioned once. 
14 times in Nehemiah, 25 times in Leviticus. We can understand that. Leviticus, how the people were supposed to, to live out the commandments and the sacrifice and the high priest and what their responsibilities were. But over time, as we move further and further through time, what happens, especially after the Israelites are set free from Babylonian captivity, man, the next thing you know, we have this explosion of laws and requirements and boxes that you're supposed to check if you really truly love God and really truly want him to love you. 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament. We call it the intertestamental period, but it's, I think a better way is, is the second temple period. And it's in that period of time that, that all of a sudden the Pharisees begin to add more and more and more laws. They're adding all these requirements down to the very moment of like, if you go to draw water from a well on the Sabbath, what was considered work and wasn't considered work? What wasn't considered work? Well, how you tie the knot onto the bucket, if you tied one knot, it was work, and that was a sin. If you tied another knot, it wasn't a sin, and therefore you could, you could tie this knot. So it got, it got insane. It got crazy. It got to the world that people couldn't even know, what am I supposed to do? What can, can I not do? Because there was law after law after law just on the Sabbath observance. So friends of mine years ago, I don't know if it's the same now, but this has probably been uh, 15 years ago, a pastor friend of mine took a team to Israel. And they were staying at a nice hotel, and uh, they were coming down for breakfast one morning, and it just happened to be on the Sabbath, Saturday. And when they all got down into the lobby, they were all complaining about the elevators. And there's something wrong with the elevators. Because what was happening with the elevators were, is when you got on the elevator on the sixth floor, that elevator would stop on every floor, going down and going up. So it didn't matter what button you pushed. With the doors open and you stepped on the elevator, if you're on ground, if you're on ground level and you're going to the 12th floor, that elevator's going to stop on every floor going up and every floor going down. And everybody was frustrated because something's wrong with the elevators. It took forever for everybody to get downstairs. So my pastor friend goes over to the lobby talks to the manager over there and says, hey, there's something wrong with your elevators. The elevators are stopping on every floor. And he says, no, it's Sabbath. As if he should know that that's supposed to be that way. He said, because on Sabbath, we don't want any Jewish people to do any work. And taking your hand out of your pocket and pushing a button on an elevator was work. And let that sink in for just a moment. So in other words, the elevators in that hotel are going to stop on every floor because if you have to push a button to tell what floor to go to, that's work. That'd be a sin. And now you're, well, now you're on the wrong side of God. That's where all this led. And then we have Jesus come on the scene. And oh my goodness, does he offend some people with his understanding or what he's teaching about the Sabbath. Turn over to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. So, so now we've moved through the Old Testament. The Israelite people are called to honor the seventh day, which is Saturday. I'm sorry, it's Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 2. And, and then as more and more laws are added to this, what happened was is the people had such, well, an overwhelming burden upon them to make sure that they didn't cross the line. And the line was constantly moving and changing based on what the scribes, the Pharisees, religious rulers were telling them. So it was, it was impossible nearly impossible to live this out. And, and, and what happened was, is the Sabbath observance became an albatross, became a burden 
something that God had been, that God had given to his people for something that for them to rejoice in has now become a burden, the exact opposite of what God intended. Because humans got involved. And just so you know, anything that we ever add to God's word always makes it worse. Always always skews our understanding. Anything that we add to it or take away from it always messes things up. And then comes Jesus, right? Look at verse 23. So here's the setting. Here's the story. You've got Jesus and the disciples. They're traveling, and the disciples are hungry. And so they're walking through this, this field, and they begin to pull wheat stalks off and rub the wheat between their hands to break the holes off to eat some of the wheat. Now notice what happens. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is, here it is, not lawful on the Sabbath? Those Pharisees, those pesky Pharisees, they were always watching, observing, and waiting for you to get out of line. Always. So they see, they see Jesus, the rabbi, right? Everybody's talking about him. His disciples who are following him, they're over there working on the Sabbath, and Jesus is not saying anything to them. He's not correcting them. And the Pharisees, of course, they want to find a way to catch Jesus, to undermine his ministry. So they look at Jesus. Jesus, you know the law, right? You know what is clearly revealed in the law, and what is revealed in the law is that working on the seventh day is a sin. Yet your disciples are working as they had defined it, as they had defined it, by rubbing the grain together in their hands to get something to eat. Well, Jesus has a response for them. Listen to this. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to do. So, so Jesus goes back into the story of David. David and his men were starving to death. They, they go into the high priest, and there is bread that is set apart only for the high priest to be able to consume. And then even when he consumes it, it's very strict as far as how, what he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to do it. That bread is not just for you to have a buffet. It's not set apart. It's special. But yet, the high priest gave David and his men the bread because they were starving. Almost as though there was a, a higher law in play here. That yes, we know we're to, to honor the Sabbath, and yes, we're to know that this bread is only for the high priest. But in this moment, I've got men who are starving, not only men, but David, a man after God's own heart. So the priest looks at the situation and says, you know what? There's something more important here. And what's more important is that I've got men, God's men, who are starving. So yeah, by all means, eat the bread. Verse 27, and he said to them, here it is, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Oh, boy. Talk about pulling a pin on the grenade and throwing it into the Pharisees. He did it right there. You see, the Pharisees had the perspective that, that, the, that man, humanity, was subjective to the Sabbath. It was all about what you did and what you didn't do, and you had to do everything just right for you to honor God on the Sabbath. So, so no, it's, it's the idea that, that man was made for the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, 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 you've got it exactly backwards. The Sabbath was a gift that God gave to the nation of Israel so that they could cease from their work to reflect, to worship, 
to be with their family, to enjoy it. And what you guys have done is you've added all of your requirements on top of it, and you've turned it into something it was never meant to be. Well, you took what was consecrated, and you've poisoned it. He said, you see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in verse 28, here comes your second grenade. This was probably a bigger one than the first one. So the Son of Man himself, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. You know what he says right there? He says, I outrank every one of you guys. Jesus says, my rank is so much above you guys, you don't even know who you're talking to. You see, him being God with flesh on, him being the one who was there at creation, there as part of the Godhead Trinity in eternity past. You see, him being God, he gets to call the shots. He gets to correctly interpret the text. He gets to be the one who says what the Sabbath is about. And all you guys, y'all are lower rank, much lower down the totem pole. So let me be sure you understand, man was not made for the Sabbath. But y'all have turned it into something that God never intended it to be. Well, let's move a little deeper. So when we get to the Sabbath in the New Testament, when we have the, the Gospels, we have the Gospels as a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus being the centerpiece, dying on a cross, as the Old Testament prophets had predicted that he would, that he would bear the sins of humanity upon himself. He would die a horrible death, that he would be the Lamb who was slain before the foundation, where the centerpiece of all of the Bible is, is Jesus coming and dying, but he doesn't stay dead. He resurrects. He, he, he tells his followers to go to an upper room and wait. Now, this Sabbath observance, we would expect to find this show up in the New Testament church, would we not? Acts chapter 15, if you would. Please turn over there. Acts chapter 15. So, we have Shabbat, rest, in Genesis 2. We have Sabbath, which is Exodus chapter 16, verse 23. We get over into the New Testament. We have a Greek word, sab sab sabaton. Sabaton is the Greek word for Sabbath. And here's something, there's some unique things that begin to happen in the New Testament. It's incredible. That's, that's kind of obvious, and then some things are a little bit behind the scenes. All right, so in the Gospels, we have this word Sabbath used several times in relation to what the Jewish people were doing and in relation to how Jesus is correcting their misunderstanding about it. He does it multiple times. This is one of the reasons that they hate him so much that they determine he's got to die. Not just his teaching on the Sabbath, but his, what they believe that he is breaking the law and the fact that he's blaspheming by claiming to be God. Now, when we get to the book of Acts, we have the New Testament church is launched. We have the upper room. The Holy Spirit is, has filled those 120 in the upper room, they spill out. They preach the gospel. Peter preaches. 3,000 come to faith in Christ. And, and we have the beginnings of the New Testament church, that, that there are going to be witnesses of mine, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost. Now, what happens is really interesting when we get to the, the book of Acts. Is in the book of Acts, the word Sabbath is only mentioned 10 times. Well, are those 10 times in relation to a commandment? where the New Testament leaders are saying to the New Testament church, hey, you've got to honor the seventh day Saturday. Is that what they're saying? Is that what we see the, the 10 times it's used in the book of Acts? Not at all. As a matter of fact, what we find in the New Testament and the book of Acts in the launch of the New Testament church is this. All of those times that the word Sabbath is used is in relation to what the Jews are doing. 
But the amazing thing is, is what the church is doing in response. The church is going to the Sabbath observance, not because they were commanded to, but because they saw this as a missions opportunity to share the gospel with those who were still trying to keep the law. So when I found this, I was looking at it, as I see Sabbath mentioned, it's almost always in context with the New Testament believers in the church going into those Sabbath observances to share the gospel and to point them to Messiah. So nowhere in the book of Acts are we commanded to keep the Sabbath. So what happened? Well, Acts 15, I think, gives us an incredible insight here. So Acts 15, an incredibly important chapter in the life of the church. I know I'm moving through vast pages of Scripture. Just stick with me. I have a point. We're getting to it. So Acts 15 is that moment when the church is having some tension. We've seen thousands come to faith in Christ, both first Jews who were people who were formerly Jews who've now put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, but also by chapter 15, we're now seeing Gentiles, non-Jewish people coming to faith in Christ and being placed in the body of Christ, the church. And guess what happens? Those Jewish Christians are looking at those Gentiles and they're saying, you know what? These Gentile believers, they really need to be circumcised. They really need to keep the law. They, at least some portion of the law, they, they need to keep their Gentiles. So there is this racial tension within the church. And understandably so, the Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, they, they knew their heritage. They were proud of it. They had real issues with Gentiles. But now, in the New Testament church, we have something brand new. The body of Christ made up of all different kinds of people, and there was tension. So, They've got to have a meeting to sort this out. So they come together at, at Acts 15, and they say, okay, we got to figure this out. What are we asking the Gentile Christians? Are we going to ask them to do something? Are we going to ask them to basically keep the law? So you got James and John and Peter and Paul. you got the leaders. And, and one of the things they don't want to have happen is they don't want to have Christianity the church to divide into two sects. They don't want a, a Jewish sect and a Gentile sect because Jesus clearly said that they're to be one. So how are we going to handle this? So they have a beating. Peter speaks. Paul speaks. We get to the end and James finally says this, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn from God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from that which has been strangled from blood, from the ancient generations, Moses has been read in every city to proclaim, for he is reading every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's, what the, here's the conclusion they come to. They come to a conclusion to say because the church was reaching lots of people who were formerly Jewish and now coming to faith in Christ, the Gentiles, their practices and idolatry can be very offensive to those who were Jewish. So what they didn't want to do is cause a bigger rift between the Gentiles and the Jews. So they looked at the Gentiles and they say to them, here's what we want you to do. We want you to not be eating any food that's been offered to idols. We, won't, we don't want you to eating things with blood in it. We don't want you to be committing sexual immorality. We, we don't want you to do these things. Now, that wasn't because they wanted them to keep the law. It's because they wanted to have one body unified together and that that was very offensive to one half of the body of Christ at that time. But you notice something that's missing? Is there anything missing here concerning our conversation this morning? If there was going to be a time where 
those Jewish leaders would have said, or who are now Christian would have said, you know, we really got to honor the Sabbath. You know, we really got to make sure that we're keeping the seventh day honored because that's what, that's what God did in creation. That's what we see in the law. Then wouldn't this have been the time to say it? Yet it's not there. And at the same time, what you have happening in the New Testament church is they have now shifted to a Sunday worship almost exclusively on the first day of the week. What day is that? It's Sunday. Why did they worship on Sunday? Why did the church not move to a Sabbath Saturday observance? Because they wanted to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every time they met. So from that point forward, you begin to see how the church meets on the first day of the week, Sunday. Does that make Sunday the Sabbath? Not at all. Does that, does that mean that, what does that mean for us as Christians in the church? What does that mean for the Sabbath? What does that mean for the Ten Commandments? Well, what's interesting about the Ten Commandments is, is that in the New Testament, nine of those Ten Commandments are affirmed. Nine of them, over and over again affirmed. Guess which one is not affirmed? The fourth, Sabbath observance. Which moves us to our next text, Hebrews chapter 4. We're almost there, folks. We're going to land the plane here in just a minute. Stick with me. Hebrews chapter 4. So what about the Sabbath rest? The writer of Hebrews gives us some clarity on this. In Hebrews chapter 4, we, we kind of jump into a conversation or something that the writer of Hebrews is teaching about a rest that is available for God's people. Now, as the writer of Hebrews is writing in a very Jewish context, he, he, he is incredible. We don't know who he is, or I would name him. I, I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I've got some leanings, but n neither here nor there. But what he writes is certainly meant for a Jewish mind to read. And he uses the Old Testament in such an incredible way. And without the book of Hebrews, we'd have a real big misunderstanding of how the Old Covenant and New Covenant, well, how they work. In Hebrews chapter 4, he's going to talk about a rest that God's people can enter. And when a Jewish person would have read that word rest, they would have understood, they would have understood that as Sabbath, right? They would have wrestled with that. Look at what he says, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, there is a rest that you can enter, but unfortunately some were missing that rest, they're failing to reach it. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That, that English translation is a little bit, little bit wonky. Here, here's what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that the gospel came, and it's in the gospel that we find this rest that he's talking about, but because of unbelief, because of a lack of faith, they missed out on this rest. In other words, they will not enter this rest just as God said to the Jewish forefathers who also disobeyed, who also did not have faith, they shall not enter my rest. Now jump down to verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken, would not have spoken of another day later. The idea is that when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, that they had entered their rest. That's not the case because God keeps talking about a future rest. So, yes, on the one hand, they entered into that place that God had promised them, but ultimately the rest that they were meant to enter was still something yet to come. Notice what else he says. This gets really critical. Verse 9. So there remains a, look at this, a Sabbath 
rest for the people of God. Well, wait a minute. Is the writer of Hebrews now saying that the church is supposed to honor the Sabbath day? That we're supposed to honor Saturday? Is that where he's going? Not at all. He says that there is a rest by which we can enter. For whomever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is tying together. In the first three chapters of Hebrews, he is constantly saying, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And so he builds on that. He says, this rest that you are called to enter by faith, well, that is none other than Christ himself. Get this, your Sabbath rest is found in none other than Jesus himself. That Jesus himself is our Sabbath rest. Why would the writer of Hebrews say that? Well, number one, Jesus fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. When I got into my 20s and I learned that it was not about what I did that earned God's love, more, more checks in this column than, than the ones where I was doing things wrong, my, my problem with that was is I could, I could never do it consistently. And you know what would happen? I, I, would, I would find myself doing these things that I know to be wrong, so what would I do? Well, I would just find a revival service to go to, a week-long set of services. And I would go there, and I'd, I'd cry, and I'd, I'd pray, and, man, I'd pull myself up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do what I've got to do, and maybe that would last for a month, two months, and then I'd find my thoughts going somewhere they didn't need to go or my actions following or something would come out of my mouth, and I was constantly defeated because I could never live up to it. I knew I was going to heaven. I knew if I died that I would, I would be in the presence of Christ, but I was, I was ashamed of the idea that I would be in front of Christ when I didn't keep all of his rules. And then when I learned for the first time in my life that God loved me as I was, just as I was, just as I am, then in those moments that I fail, Christ doesn't turn his back on me and walk away. Folks, I want you to know that changed my life never gotten over it. And here, when he's saying that Jesus being our Sabbath rest, that when I finally understood what salvation was and what Christ had done in my life, you know what I finally found after looking for it for so many years? I found rest. (laughs) I didn't have to keep the law. The law had been kept for me. Was the law important? Yes. But this was an act of worship back to God to walk within his boundaries, not something where God was waiting to club me over the head every time I stepped out of bounds. Because, brothers and sisters, I stepped out on a regular basis. And this whole idea that God was ready to club me, to beat me down, that's how I lived for far too long, and I'll never live there again. Because in the grace of God and his peace, him being my Sabbath, And him keeping the law for me, I found rest. I finally got rid of that list of do's and don'ts, although it creeps back up ever so often. I know where it comes from. Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. You know what he said? You know the verse. I will give you what? Some of y'all need some rest. Some of y'all need some rest desperately. Because, man, you got that list, and that list keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer. And you always find yourself right back where you started, right? Because when you fail, it all resets. 
Well, I got to start over again. He says, our rest, our Sabbath rest. There's a Sabbath rest for people. Who, where can we find it? It is in Christ. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive to enter that rest. Lost person, you want to find true contentment and true rest. It is not following the practice of a religion. It is following Jesus who died on the cross and resurrected. Only there will you find that kind of peace. Only there will you find rest. So the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, we have, we have a Sabbath. That Sabbath is in Christ himself. A Sabbath rest found only in him. And then it brings us to our last set of verses, Colossians. Man, we started in Genesis. We're going to end with a letter to the church at Colossae by the hand of Paul. And what he says here, well, let's just say he's going to plant a flag right here on our understanding of well, what it means to be a Christ father in relation to the fourth commandment. The book of Colossians is a beautiful text. It, um, I think one of, the, one of the most beautiful sets of passages is verses 15 uh, through 23 where Paul talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones are dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Remember what he said about the Sabbath? You remember that? He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There again, Paul affirms that, that Jesus is Lord over the creation. He is the one who holds all things together, was created by him, through him, for him, and he holds all things together. In chapter 2, Paul is going to deal with this idea of Sabbath observance. Look at verse 13 in chapter 2. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, God made alive together with him. This idea, Ephesians gets into this, that when I place my faith in Christ, that I became in Christ. As a matter of fact, the first chapter of Ephesians says that phrase multiple times. I can't remember how many times it is, but several, where he says we are now in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. That I, if Jesus is my, is my Sabbath rest, as the writer of Hebrews says, and I have entered into that rest in Christ, then my rest, my Sabbath rest, my, my ceasing to try to do things myself, that's wrapped up in none other than Christ. Paul says... Because we've been forgiven, we've been made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Look at verse 14. By canceling, that word literally means to erase the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What was the legal demands of the debt that we owed? The debt that we owed is not being able to keep the law. We were not righteous people. We were unrighteous. And therefore, God's wrath was focused on us. And, and, and that, that debt that we owed that we could not pay by being good enough, that debt, well, get this, its legal demands was the death sentence. Its legal demand was the death sentence. But Jesus and what he did, he erased the record of debt. He canceled the legal demands on our behalf. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Then we get to verse 16. Therefore, important word, connects us back to the previous verses. Based on the reality of what Christ did on our behalf, our faith in him 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or, get this, a Sabbath. I think Paul's pretty clear there. Paul says, y'all are arguing about the seventh day or the first day. And what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, is you're arguing about something that is not, a, not an issue. It's not a problem. Jesus being our rest, Jesus being our Sabbath, we are no longer bound to that fourth commandment. Hmm. Well, I just gave you permission to not show up now on Sunday, right? Not so fast. So as we land the plane here, how, do we, how are we to think about this? Well, first of all, every day of life is a day of worship, not just Sunday. If you, if you come up to me today or you send me an email on Monday, I've got these before. Somebody will come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I'm just, I'm just not getting fed. You know, I'm just, I think I'm going to find me another church. Just not getting fed anymore in service. You know, I'm, you know, the worship team, I'm just not connecting with what they're doing. Your sermons, man, they're pretty lame. So I, I'm just not getting fed. If you ever come up with me with that, just be prepared for what I'm getting ready to tell you because I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> I'm going to be nice about it. Don't, don't think I'm not going to be. You can call my sermons lame. It doesn't hurt me a bit. It doesn't bother me a bit. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Right, here, the question I'm going to ask. How was your worship Monday through Saturday? Oftentimes, the response by their face or what they say is, they may say, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, you know, your worship time that you set apart on Wednesday, how did that go? And Thursday, and how did that go? And they think, well, well you know, I, I come to church to worship. And then I smile and I go, well, there's the problem right there. Folks, if you're coming here one day a week to get your cup filled, have you heard anybody say, oh, I go to church to get filled up? We have it exactly opposite. Corporate worship is the overflow of the worship you've been doing all week. So if you come up here and you got your frown upside down, you got your smile upside down into a frown because you didn't like the service, it's probably connected to the fact that you haven't been worshiping God all week. Because by the time we get to the first day of the week, Sunday, I'm ready to be here because I'm trying to worship during the week. I'm trying to see the sunrise and give God praise for that. I, I see my kids and what they're doing, and I give praise for that. I, I'm thankful for my marriage. I'm thankful for my home. I'm thankful for this church. And by the time I get here on Sunday, I'm fit to be tied, folks. Does that describe your walk with Christ? Every day is a day of worship, not just Sunday. Number two, Gathering on Sunday is the result of our love for him, not an obligation. Some of you are here this morning simply out of obligation. Well, that's dry, isn't it? It's just so dry. You're just forcing yourself to get up because that's what you've always done. It's what your parents taught you. It's what you do on Sunday. So you force yourself to get up out of an obligation. Let me give you an illustration to help us understand obligation versus love. Let's imagine a young couple, right? early 20s. Man, they've been dating. They are crazy in love. They're getting on everybody's nerves. Uh, they're just gushing all over each other, and everybody's just like, y'all need to chill, take a break. But man, they're just deeply in love, right? So the young man decides, this is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. This is, this is the one. There is no other woman on God's green earth except this one. 
So he goes and he spends the money and he buys the diamond and uh, he comes up with a big plan on how he's going to propose. So you've got to have the big plan. He's got family stashed in the bushes with cameras and maybe they're at the beach and they're just beautiful side and the, the soon-to-be wife already knows what's up. He's not fooled anybody. She's already thinking something's up. Well, we get to that moment. He bows on one knee, gives her the ring, proposes. She's overjoyed. The tears begin to flow. They embrace. They have a big, wet, sloppy kiss. And then the boyfriend steps back, and as lovingly as he can, he asks these questions. Are you going to expect me to buy you a gift every birthday and every anniversary? Because that could be a deal breaker for me. I don't know that I'm really into that. Are you going to expect me to love your in-laws because I really don't care for them? Does that come with this? Because if that's kind of the case, I'm not sure that I will So what happens is he begins to give all of these things that he feels like he's obligated to do. How insane would that be? Is this polar opposite of what just happened, the love and the, the embrace, and now all of a sudden he's worried about the obligations of love? Well, as crazy as that illustration is, isn't it exactly the same way with us following Jesus? Oh, I'll follow you, Jesus, but am I going to be obligated to X, Y, and Z? Because that you know, kind of cramps my style. I've got things going on. I'm a little busy. I'll see you on Sunday. Is that what love is? It's not in that couple, and it's certainly not in our love for Christ. If Listen, the whole idea of, of a Sabbath observance, if, if we have to be forced to do it, then it's not love. It's not what the New Testament's teaching us. If we, if we have to be obligated and, and coerced and leveraged into coming and gathering and worshiping together, then, then it'd probably be better that you don't come. You see where I'm going here? It's an act of worship and an act of love. It's not an obligation. It's something we get to do. It's something you get to do tomorrow if you choose to do it. It's something you, you get to involve yourself in. It's not an obligation. And if worship has become an obligation, corporate worship, individual worship, if it's become an obligation, you're going to need to do some heart checks on the inside because something, something's got your attention. It could be an idol that has your attention. Third, six days to work, one day to rest. That's wise. That's wisdom. But get this, it's not commanded. I think I've maybe proved my point by this point. As far as the New Testament church, commanded? I know what you're thinking. Hebrews 10, 25, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together is the matter of some. Absolutely. That as a church body, we are to gather together, whether that's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, gather together. Worship corporately, it's important. But when we start thinking about Sabbath, the command, the fourth command, does, does that apply? Mm -mm. Not commanded. Because of what Christ did in us, changing our life, we're to do it as an act of worship. Remember Romans 12, 1? It is our reasonable service to worship him, to lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is reasonable. This is going to be some application for you right here. Some of y'all just need a nap. Not now, later. Need, some of y'all need a nap. Young couples, kids. If, if your kids are old enough to where they can kind of do their homework today or uh, be focused on something, they just can't go outside the house, couples hear me. This is some good advice for you. You tell those kids, look, mom and dad are going to go in that bedroom right over and we're going to shut that door. Unless you are on fire or bleeding, 
do not, do not open that door because your mom and dad are tired and we're going to take about a four-hour nap, so do not. <laughs> Listen, you'd be happier. You get in there and you've got some drool running out of your face, your, car, your, your, rug, your, your, your pillow's soaked. You need about, couples, y'all need about four-hour nap. Your marriage would get better. Your parenting would get better. Your money would be better. So your pastor said to you this morning, you can go home. You have permission. Go home. Take a nap. You need one. You'd have a bigger smile on your face if you did. You need some rest, man. Y'all are stressed out. God didn't intend for you to be stressed out. Seven days a week, he gave us a gift. Take a break. Take a nap. I don't care what day you do it. I don't give us a day or tomorrow. Take a break. Y'all are stressed out. And your body's telling you, your blood pressure's telling you, your heart rate is telling you, you're sucking down coffee like there's no tomorrow. Your heart rate's 120 when you're sitting in this chair. Your body is telling you, stop. God is telling you, stop. Why don't you? There's some application for you. And finally, Jesus has our Sabbath rest. He relieves us from keeping the law. And he promises us a future rest with him. We're already in him in Christ. But he says to us, come unto me, all that are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest from trying to do all the right things and not do the wrong things. Just trust me with that. Let's, let's enter into a love relationship. Let's walk together. And all those to-do lists that you've got, all those laws you're trying to keep, that'll all fade in the background because you'll be so enamored with me, that just falls in the background. Then the next thing you know, you want to do the right things, not because of do's and don'ts, but because you love me and you walk with me. So just walk with me, keep your eyes on me, and let me take care of some of these things in your life. And oh yeah, by the way, take a nap. I'm your, Jesus is your Sabbath rest. He promises you rest today from trying to keep the law, and he promises you rest for eternity with him in that place he has prepared. Have you entered that rest? Are you getting some rest? If not, Jesus is your Sabbath rest. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram.